Well, Grace Church, good morning. It's great to be here, and as we've already mentioned, we've had a full morning of hearing the gospel preached over and over again by in the waters of baptism, and I am here to, again, open the Word of God from Habakkuk. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Habakkuk. If this is your first Sunday here, my name is Brett Hastings. I'm one of the pastors here, and... It's my joy to be doing this short series on Habakkuk. And if you missed last week as we got into it, you want to go back and listen to that just for much of the introductory material that helps set the stage. But I'll try to mention any pertinent information as far as what we have to say today. So last week we made it through the first four verses. And that opening section consisted of Habakkuk, who we know is a faithful inquirer of the Lord. He was crying out to Yahweh intensely and repetitively because of the injustices that he saw in his nation all around him. He turned to the one to whom he knew could do something about it. We saw a man who continued to be disgusted by the violence going on around him, who did not put his hope in the law to fix the problem, but he turned to God, crying out for justice to be done. What we learned last week is to persevere in prayer even when we are perplexed by what's going on around us, by God's answer or what we believe is a lack of an answer. We learn to keep our minds in Scripture on the Lord so as to not grow indifferent concerning the violence and the sin around us. And finally, we learn to hope in God as the ultimate solution to the problem of injustice, not the law. And these verses formulate what your Bible labels as Habakkuk's complaint, the first four verses, or a lament. And the structure of the book is really framed around Habakkuk's questions, his complaints or laments, and God's responses, with a final chapter, the declaration of Habakkuk of his faith and his trust in God. And so let's look at Habakkuk, and as we look at this, I want to make a comment Uh, concerning something I mentioned last week, just by way of review, the Habakkuk's first perplexity is that the injustices of the world go unjudged. The physical violence and death that he saw is described as being ever before his eyes. He sees this injustice. He cries out to God with great intensity to be saved and the oppressed to be saved. He wants God's hand of judgment to come upon The social elites, the prophets, the priests, those who propagate lies, and all those who buy into their corrupt ideologies and idolatries. And what we're going to talk about today is Yahweh's response to Habakkuk's pleas for justice. But before we do, I just want to make a comment, the point that the increasing wickedness in the land is a form of of God's judgment. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read a couple verses from Romans 1. And if you've been at this church for a while, you've heard this over and over again, but there's a lot here. I don't want to take the point for granted. Many of you are here. You haven't uh, been here and heard this over and over, but the increasing wickedness of the land is a judgment from God. In Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And as they do this, it says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. In verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's exactly what Habakkuk saw in his day. That's exactly what we see in our day. And as Habakkuk was dismayed at the level of sin he saw in his society, he was perplexed as to why God was not judging it, why he wasn't doing something about it. And what Habakkuk didn't realize that we see in Romans 1 is that the increasing wickedness of his day was the judgment of God. He was judging them by handing them over to their sin. When we look around in our society and we wonder, how long can God let all of this go before He judges us? Well, this is the judgment. Continually being handed over to sin. And we haven't quite reached the same severity as the time of Habakkuk. We talked about this last week. True prophets were being slaughtered. Their voices silenced. And we aren't quite there yet, but seems to be well on our way. But what are we to do in our country as society runs off the cliff of Romans 1? And I think we find the answer to that today in Yahweh's response to Habakkuk. And I'll give you the punchline up front. What we do as faithful believers is we continue to declare the coming judgment of God to instill fear in those who rebel against Him. So Yahweh's answer to Habakkuk is all about the coming judgment, and so our outline for the, this morning follows that. There's going to be three points. Point number one, a gracious disclosure of judgment in verse 5. Point number two, a sovereign declaration of judgment in verse 6. And then point number three, a severe description of judgment in verses 7 to 11. So let's look at these verses here in Habakkuk, and I'll begin reading in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And then the Lord answers him. He says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. 
At kings they scoff and rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So as a wicked society barrels forward off the cliff of Romans 1, continue to suppressing truth, they need the fear of God struck in them by the preaching of God's coming judgment. Just like Jonah did to Nineveh, just like the New Testament apostles did. In fact, Paul uses this very passage as he's uh, preaching repentance to people in Acts chapter 13. But as we declare the judgment of God, it ought to be gracious as God revealed it. Again, point number one, a gracious disclosure of judgment. In verse 5, he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So God answers Habakkuk with four imperatives, four commands here. Look. See, wonder, and be astounded. They're all commands. These commands are also in the plural form, which means that the audience is wider than just Habakkuk. This is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received from God. It wasn't just for him. It was for him to take and actually proclaim to the rest of the nation. So while it is God's answer to him, it's also his burden, his job to proclaim this to the nation of Israel. But his answer to Habakkuk's question of injustice inside of Israel, Yahweh immediately points him outside. He says, look to the nations. Points him outside of Israel. And God actually here uses the same words in his response to Habakkuk that Habakkuk used. The words look and see here are the same verses in verse 3. Habakkuk declared in verse 3 what he saw, that he knew God saw it as well, and God commands him to keep observing, keep looking, keep wondering and being astounded. Those commands, wonder and be astounded, they're actually the same word in the Hebrew, but they're different forms. The word expresses the act of freezing with fear, but being in the plural... And in the reflexive form, it commands the listeners to look in astonishment at each other. But with that same verb repeated, it's better understood as a command to look in astonishment at one another, being horrified. And taking all four of these imperative verbs, God commands Habakkuk to wait and watch because you haven't seen anything yet. He says, if you think it's bad now, you better prepare yourself. Because he says, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This doesn't necessarily mean that Habakkuk is not going to believe it. He, we know from the book here, he goes out and he preaches it, so we know he believes it. Rather, it's spoken as a plural, because it's really the message for Habakkuk to take and repeat to others. He did it, and we're reading it right here. So it isn't that Habakkuk is not going to believe it, but the horrifying message in general is so bad, it's not going to be believed in general by the people he's proclaiming it to. People are not going to accept the truth of God's coming judgment. Yet, 
God in His graciousness continued to declare it over and over again faithfully to His servants that they might go forth and proclaim the coming judgment of God. So This is a gracious disclosure of judgment for believers and unbelievers alike. For the faithful and the pagan. This message was gracious to Habakkuk and the faithful because even the way God starts, He's easing Habakkuk into it. Before He ever tells Habakkuk of the severity of the judgment, He graciously prepares him with this language. Before God tells him of the details, He indicates how horrifyingly bad it is here. The faithful are prepared at the beginning of this pronouncement for how bad it was. God warned them ahead of time. The faithful, they were not blindsided by God's judgment. They, have plenty, they had plenty of warning from Habakkuk, from Jeremiah, from Deuteronomy, all the prophets. And God wasn't required to warn them. They had the Torah, the list of prophets that came before Habakkuk, outlining their sins, promising judgment. So the faithful were warned. And even with the first sentence of this judgment, it's preparing them for the rest of it. God was gracious to warn them again and again, this time through the prophet Habakkuk. But this was also a grace to unbelievers. Why? It was one more plea to repent before the coming judgment. It was why God delayed their judgment. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness. See, Habakkuk thought God was being slow to judge the people. But God is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is doing this gracious proclamation again to turn people back from their sin. And Habakkuk was given this message to go and proclaim. Do you think this was a popular message for Habakkuk to go tell his neighbors? Jeremiah tells us what the, the popular message of the day was. In Jeremiah 14, 13-14, it says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, you shall not have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, the, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. In Jeremiah 23, 16-17, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you and with everyone who follows his own stubborn heart. They say no disaster shall come upon you. The false teachers, when Habakkuk is trying to proclaim this message, the false teachers are saying, peace, peace. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Even in your sexual immorality, in your idolatry, God is okay with it. 
I mean, look at our prosperity. He wouldn't destroy this beloved nation, this beloved city, Jerusalem. Peace, peace. Continue happily in your sin. That was the popular message of the day. And then along comes Habakkuk and Jeremiah, the joy kills. They say, God is angry with you because of your sin. Because of your pride, because of following after your own heart. He is going to destroy Jerusalem. And I imagine people would just laugh at them. Much like if you go out street evangelizing, me and my buddy in downtown Burbank had this happen, trying to sober people about standing before God, and they'd just laugh. I imagine Habakkuk got the same response. But did he stop? No. He and Jeremiah, even with a threat of death, they continued to proclaim the coming judgment of God. Was it a successful message? No. In fact, the pronouncement includes the preamble that people are not going to believe it. They're not going to believe God's coming judgment. But that did not stop Habakkuk. The faithful message that God's judgment is coming, it's a grace to believers and unbelievers alike. We can't shy away from proclaiming the judgment of God in our evangelism. We must try to strike the fear of God in people. And telling them that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life, it doesn't sober them. Not to mention that's a lie if they're unbelievers. God only has a wonderful plan for them if they repent and believe. You cannot rightly and honestly tell an unbeliever that. But what we can honestly and unapologetically declare along with all the prophets of old is that judgment is coming. And if you don't repent, if you stand opposed to God, you will be run over like getting hit with a freight train. So God was gracious to disclosed this message of coming judgment. And he was gracious in how he did it. He prepared Habakkuk to hear it, telling him how horrible it was before he ever got to any of the details. We see here a gracious disclosure of judgment. And that brings us to the next verse, verse 6, a sovereign declaration of judgment. Verse 6 says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. See, Israel, as you read throughout the Old Testament, you see that they're very introspective, navel-gazing, thinking that they're at the center of the world. They became so paganized and they're thinking that they thought Yahweh was just another localized God like all the other gods that they had begun to worship, all the other idols that they had begun to serve. However, God reveals here that His sovereign power extends far beyond the borders of Israel. Yahweh is sovereign over the entire earth. He raises up nations. He humbles nations and tears them down. But He is sovereign. And in order to judge the nation of Israel, He is raising up another nation. And in the Hebrew here, it's a causative verb, just in case it could be missed, Yahweh is the ultimate cause for their ascent to world power. Yahweh is raising them up in order to judge 
Israel. And the nation he is raising up is the Chaldeans. Chaldeans refers to a distinct people group who appear in the 9th century BC primarily as a tribal people who lived south of Babylonia. The Assyrians, they began to move into that region of the world. And they began to oppress these tribal lands, these people groups, and the Chaldeans are the ones that rose up to fight against them. And decades went on with the Assyrians trying to subjugate these people, but the Chaldeans eventually gained prominence. They took over cities and towns, and eventually they defeated the Assyrians to become the dominant world power in 605, with their capital being in Babylon. Thus they're known as the Babylonians as well. The rest of verse 6 summarizes the Chaldeans as, as well as what God will use them to do. To take dwelling places, not their own. To take the homes of the Jews. And it summarizes them as a bitter and hasty nation. That term bitter is the word mara. Its most basic sense refers to something being strong, but that's bitter because of its strength, its potency. It became known to refer to an emotion of bitterness that has strong outworkings. And in certain Old Testament passages like this one, it refers to being strong as in fierce or furious in battle. And the word for hasty is a word that pictures someone who's frantically and anxiously running around from one thing to the next. So we have this picture, the summary of this army that's characterized as fiercely darting around looking for the next city to destroy, like someone anxiously running around. And they march through the breadth of the earth to the extent of the known world they march to destroy. And the final line gives us the purpose for their domination, and that is to seize dwelling places not their own. God declares to the prophet Habakkuk that he is raising up the Chaldeans. Even as he is speaking this oracle, they're rising up and fighting Assyria. And their purpose is to come and take the dwelling places of Judah. And though it doesn't tell us that here, Jeremiah went proclaiming this all throughout the book of Jeremiah, that this is what the Babylonians were coming to do. Jeremiah 21 says, The king of Babylon is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past so that He will withdraw from us. But Jeremiah answers them and he tells them essentially that the Lord has raised them up for this purpose, that they're going to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. So Yahweh is raising them up to take Judah, to exile them. They're going to take Jerusalem for their own selves, to put people there for themselves, to gain the wealth of that land for themselves. So God here, He wastes no time getting to the punch. He says He's going to announce something unbelievable and right away speaks of another bitter, hasty nation that He will rise up to use to judge Judah. With a single line, with a single verse, Habakkuk is cut to the core. Yahweh is sending this army to exile the nation. And what is abundantly clear is that Yahweh is sovereign and He is bringing all of this about. 
Yahweh is sovereign over the entire earth, over human history. He reigns. And for those who believe in God's sovereignty, even as horrible of a judgment as being exiled, those who believe can still find comfort in the fact that God is sovereign, He is good, and He is working these things together for the good of those who love Him. Turning your Bibles back to Psalm 119. I imagine for the faithful, like Habakkuk, this was very difficult to hear. That God was judging the entire nation and they're going to be swept up in the midst of this judgment. The faithful are going to be swept up with the unfaithful. So Yahweh here is giving them comfort, letting them know, hey, I'm sovereign and I am in control. Psalm 119 gives us a reason to hope in trials, to trust in the goodness of God even when we're going through trials, when God sovereignly brings things into our lives to test us. Look at Psalm 119 over in verse 65. I'm going to read just one stanza, 65 to 72. The psalmist says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. For before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So One of the purposes of the Lord to afflict us in this life, whether we're being swept up in judgment upon unbelievers or He's just bringing a trial into our own life, such afflictions are good because they teach us to obey Him. In our trials, we are driven to Him. We turn to His Word for answers. We are sanctified and washed with a Word. When others are being judged by God and we are affected as collateral damage, God uses that to teach us. And as believers, we echo what the psalmist here says, it was good that you afflicted me. It taught me to follow you, to obey you. Moreover, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Paul begins in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, by talking about the present suffering of the church. People being imprisoned. People being persecuted for speaking the truth. Some being put to death even. And Paul recognizes the difficulty in such trials. People being drugged off, imprisoned, put to death, hauled off. Paul offers hope for such believers in the midst of trial. And that is the final 
glory. Romans 8, just begin uh, in 18 and then we'll skip down. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's pointing the persecuted Christians ahead to the future glory that they have. Look down at verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many nations. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So Paul reveals here to us that God is working all things for the good of those who love Him to conform us to the image of Christ. That we might be perfect and complete in Him. And Paul assures us, we hope in that final glory, but that's as good as done. He uses an aorist tense, which is a verb that indicates a completed event. Our glorification is as good as done. Though in time and space, we're still working towards that end, it is completed in Christ's work on the cross. And as believers, even in the midst of great trials, like being exiled, subjugated, marginalized, persecuted, we know that it is for our good and for His glory. So, God comforts Habakkuk here, reminding them that He is in control of all this. And Habakkuk will walk in faith, trust God in faith that this is what is best. And we continue to trust God in this life as we are surrounded by injustice. We go through trials. We trust that God is sovereign over the entire world and He is working all of it for our good. That's the first aspect of His sovereignty. The sovereign declaration. The second is He does this He's sovereign over all this, not just to sanctify us, but also to turn people to Himself. Jeremiah 29, 11, this is a famous verse that people put on their fridge. I'm going to back up just one verse in verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So he's already talking about the exile being 70 years long says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. So why did God exile Judah? To turn them back to Himself. Why does God send judgment upon nations in this life? Why does He desecrate nations with sin? To bring people to their knees, that they might be humble and seek Him. So beloved, don't be surprised if things get worse in our country. 
Because the Lord can and He will use such events to make you more like Jesus and also to save some who would otherwise continue on their merry way in rebellion. So we must continue to graciously declare God's coming judgment, to continue to trust that He is sovereign in bringing all of this about, even the judgment of the wicked for your good, in order to bring them to repentance. Don't fall into the lie that evil is running rampant, that God and Satan are in this cosmic battle and sometimes Satan's winning and sometimes God is. Yahweh declares here that He is sovereign and He's bringing it all about. We've seen the gracious disclosure of judgment, the sovereign declaration of judgment, and finally there is a severe description of judgment. Verses 7-11. to 11. Let me just reread verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Habakkuk in verse 4, he lamented that justice never goes forth. Judgments never go forth to punish the wicked. But here Yahweh uses the same verb going forth to describe this dreaded and fearful judgment going forth into Judah. Yahweh essentially says, Habakkuk, you want a judgment coming forth? Here it is. You've prayed for it. You've cried out for it. Here's the fearful and dreaded judgment I am sending. They go forth as a law unto themselves. They judge as they see fit, which is a ruthless judgment. It goes on the description of terror of this judgment in verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. Leopards are very similar to cheetahs or hunting leopards, which apparently were once tamed and trained in Palestine as they still are in India today. So the Chaldean horses are poetically described as being Faster than leopards. Faster than leopards. Leopards and cheetahs look very similar. It could be referring to either here. And the top speed of a horse ever recorded is 55 miles an hour, which is pretty fast. But the cheetah is the fastest animal on the earth at 70 miles an hour. And the point of this simile is that the horses of the Chaldeans, the cavalry, would be faster than anything Habakkuk had ever seen before. They're lightning fast. It goes on to continue the description. They're fiercer than evening wolves. Evening wolves are fiercer because they're nocturnal. They sleep during the day and they wake up in the evening hungry and they go out to hunt. They hunt in packs, able to take down animals much larger than themselves. They're fierce as hungry evening wolves setting out to devour. So the Chaldeans, they'd be fast as lightning, fast as... Cheetahs, fierce as wolves, speedily coming to devour. They fly like an eagle to devour. And this word fly in conjunction with the verb meaning to eat or devour refers to the speed at which the eagle swoops down to snatch its prey. And eagles, while diving through the air to snatch their prey, can reach speeds up to 200 miles an hour. 
But all of this language harkens back to Deuteronomy where Moses promised this upon the nation if they did not continue to keep the covenant with God. Deuteronomy 28, 48-51 said, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. They shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It's a picture of utter desecration and decimation. One commentator says that these verses, and I quote, describe the fierceness of the Babylonian army. Their horses and their soldiers seem larger than life. The sinister aspect accented here is the swiftness of the army, its ability to appear out of nowhere, accomplish its gruesome work, and suddenly vanish again. And the second emphasis is the army's resemblance to wild beasts of prey with their eagerness to attack, plunder, kill, and slip away to enjoy the spoils of the hunt. Who could stand before armies of this magnitude? End quote. Terrifying. But the description of severe judgment isn't over. It continues in verse 9. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. One commentator says of this passage, and I quote, The first two parallel lines of verse 9 convey the thought that every horse and rider in the Babylonian cavalry is pressing forward for the kill. There is no laggard or coward or squeamish individual in the lot. The parallel lines, they simply offer different imagery for basically the same motif. End quote. So this invincible Neo-Babylonian army, they'll move forward as one unit, all bent on violence. They press forward with a single face to conquer, gathering captives like Sand. Sounds pretty bad. Sounds dreadful and terrifying. Like being hunted by a leopard you can't outrun. By being chased by a pack of hungry wolves. And they can hit you so fast like an eagle snatching its prey, you'll never see it coming. That is the judgment of God. Dreadful and terrifying. And what's worse is it's unstoppable. Look at verse 10. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. The kings and rulers of the earth can't stop God's judgment from coming. This army that he has raised up, it's so powerful, earthly armies are helpless to stand against it. What about walled cities and fortresses? Surely the impenetrable Jerusalem will survive and stand against this army, but no. Like coming up against the strongest king or ruler, they laugh at walled fortresses. At walled and secured cities, they simply just pile up the earth to make a way over the wall to destroy it from the inside out. Even the people in Jerusalem, you have no hope. There is no stopping 
the severe judgment of God for your sins. You must believe it is coming. God is doing it. He is sovereign and its severity is horrifying. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord, your sins have not been forgiven. You stand opposed to God and His judgment is coming. Only we know as New Testament believers, Travis's message from Luke 16, that the judgment that is coming is an eternal conscious torment in hell. After being there even for a moment, you will cry out even for a drop of water, but you will never receive it. It is an eternity where you will sit under the eternal wrath of God. This is just a picture to get you to see how you need to fear God and turn from Him. A picture of how terrifying the judgment of God is being torn apart by wild beasts for all eternity. Burning for all eternity. This is simply one image in Scripture that God gives to graciously turn you away from your sin. If you are here today and you do not know Him, I plead with you to see the coming judgment of God, to repent of your sins and believe in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to pay the penalty you deserve. Confess your sins and turn to Him because there is no escape. You either bow the knee right now and receive forgiveness, or you bow the knee later when you receive judgment. speaks of the Chaldeans in verse 11. says, after they devastate one place, they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So think of a tornado that has gone through and left a devastating wake. That's the judgment of God. That's what the Chaldeans were going to do to Jerusalem. And these people, they are determined to continue to grow mightier and mightier because their might is their God. It's an act of worship for them to continue to devastate, to destroy, to conquer and carry off captives. That's how they worship their God. And such horrific violence is pleasing to their God and they are driven by worship as they continue to destroy. So in the time of Habakkuk, God's judgment is a fierce people who worship their God by destroying civilizations, taking people captive. And they'll stop at nothing until their God reigns and they have all the power. Such a severe Picture of judgment. It's only a fraction of what we know is coming for unbelievers because of the New Testament. Far more severe, far more terrifying than being run over by a people like the Babylonians. Conscious eternal torment pales in comparison for what these Babylonians are going to do to Israel pales in comparison to conscious eternal torment, the wrath of God. And such a severe message of judgment ought to have the same effect that it had on Habakkuk. We should believe it. 
We should go out and warn people of the coming judgment that they might turn back from it. And beloved, I know you are faithful in this. We've seen people coming to faith in the church because we're faithfully proclaiming this message. But I just want to encourage you, continue to do this as our world gets darker and darker. It is not a popular message, but if we want to remain faithful, we must continue to proclaim the judgment of God coming. And as horrifying as the coming judgment of God is, it doesn't do any good to disbelieve that God would do something so horrible. Rather, we believe. We trust God at His word. And we warn people of the coming judgment. We believe God's words. We believe God is sovereign. Trusting that He is doing what will glorify Him and what will sanctify us. We must warn others of the coming judgment. So just to tie this together with what we talked about last week, in a world that's running off the cliff of Romans 1 of wickedness, it grows darker and darker. We're to persevere in prayer even when we are perplexed by what's going on. We continue to despise sin even when it abounds. We hope in God even when it seems hopeless. And we believe in God's coming judgment and we proclaim it to those around us that they might fear God, repent and believe and be saved from the coming judgment. That's the same gracious work that Habakkuk was called to and that's the same gracious work that all of us as believers are called to. So I would just implore you, continue to do it faithfully. Continue to proclaim the horrible coming wrath of God that we might turn some back from their foolishness, that we might convince them, that we might teach them the fear of God, that they might be sobered that one day they will stand before God. And if they do not repent and believe in this life, they will be punished for all eternity. May we be faithful to continue preaching this message even when we are faced with a threat of death as Habakkuk and Jeremiah were. May we be that faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have revealed all throughout the Old Testament that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Over and over and over again, you sent messengers to warn people of your coming judgment. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see that those who were faithful were the ones who did not compromise. They didn't change the message. They didn't soften the blow of your coming judgment. But they spoke with all sobriety and all love and graciousness as you spoke to them. But they were faithful. And Lord, we, I pray for this church that we would Follow in the footsteps of the prophets and Jesus Christ who warned of hell and the apostles and all the faithful men who have, for it is not faithful to continue to tell unbelievers that you have a good plan for them as they stand opposed to you, as they stand ready to receive the sword of judgment. May you give us wisdom and grace and love as we proclaim this horrifying 
message of coming judgment and turn them to a loving and gracious God who seems to endlessly send messengers to proclaim the way of salvation, the way of repentance. May we remain faithful to you, Lord. Amen.